Geoglitch and welcome back to Geoglitch Ministries or welcome to Geoglitch Ministries if it is your first time. I hope you find today's sermon enjoyable but more so I hope you find it edifying and even convicting. If you are a non-believer I hope you stick around and I hope that God uses this sermon in your life to bring you to the faith. God bless and enjoy. We're back now in Hosea chapter 6. We're going to be going near the end today, not quite in the end. For for some reason, the people who did the chapter divides of Hosea decided to start chapter 7 seemingly in the middle of a sentence. Because I don't think these chapter divides were, were always here, always in the book. I think they were added afterwards. So for some reason, it was decided that... Chapter 7 would go in the in, in the middle of a sentence. I don't know why. Uh, but there you go. So just for the sake of simplicity, I guess, I'm going to be starting next time with ending on chapter 6, verse 11, and then going on to um, doing verse 7, essentially. So today we're doing verses 7, 8, 9, and 10 from chapter 6. So we're, we're nearly finished the um, the chapter. One verse to go. And we'll be doing that when we start chapter 7. So, let's read. Uh, Hosea 6, 7 to 10. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood, as robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. um, They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. So we're going to start at verse 7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Um, There they dealt faithlessly with me. Now there's a few things I want to talk about here. I want to talk first of all about... First two things kind of relating to Adam. First of all, how he was the first man. Now... It says here, Adam transgressed the covenant. Uh, covenant. Of course, this is referring to the beginning of the, the Bible, Genesis, which I'm going to read from in a minute, Genesis chapter 3. And so it's, it talks about him transgressing the covenant. And I think we need to remember, covenant, excuse me, I think we need to remember something. Adam was the first man. And now the Bible says this on a few different occasions. Through one man, sin entered the world. Through one man came sin and death and so on. And people try to find ways around this. I think, now I used to be a theistic evolutionist. Looking back now, I think the biggest problem with theistic evolution is the hyperfixation on Genesis. Now, this, this this would make sense. This would seem to make sense. Um, <clears throat> because that's where the creation account is. But we have to remember that the Bible talks about di- the same thing in different places sometimes. There isn't just one part of the Bible that talks about love and then never again. It's scattered throughout. In the same way, there isn't just one part of the Bible that talks about creation. There's one part of the Bible dedicated to describing creation, that's Genesis. But there are also different parts of the Bible which will mention it or reference it and so on. Paul references it. It's referenced here. Um, well, specifically, Adam is referenced here. But Genesis isn't the only place that mentions it. And so I think that the problem that um, a lot of people have, a lot of non-creationist Christians have, is they really hyperfixate on Genesis and they don't allow themselves to look anywhere else. And the few that do will only look at those specific Bible verses which can sort of be explained away from the theistic evolutionist uh, viewpoint. But I'm yet to see anyone 
tackle verses which just kind of clearly say Adam was the first man. Because there are verses in the Bible that say Adam was the first man. Now the second thing I want to prepare you for, I want to talk about in relation to the fall. I'm going to go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Um, I'll, I'll just start reading from the beginning of 3 and I'll just stop when I feel like it. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the fields that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say to you, um, say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was um, desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool on the day. Um, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to, um, to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, um, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent gave me and I ate. I think we'll end it there. We won't read any more. It's not really that necessary. So, Genesis quite clearly says, Eve ate, not, not an apple, as people like to say now. It might have been, I don't think it was. It might have been an individual type of fruit that was unique to that tree. I'm not sure. Eve ate a fruit. And after her, she gave it to her husband and her husband ate. Now, most of the rest of the Bible, when referencing this, refers to it as Adam's sin. And there are good reasons for that. I won't get into it. I'm not. That's that's a whole other thing that needs its own whole discussion. So I won't get into it. But the whole rest of the Bible, well, not the whole rest. I'd say what 90 percent of the verses that reference this refer to it as Adam's sin. I'm not sure if there's a single verse in the Bible that refers to it as Eve's sin. There might be, but I think most of them just say that Eve ate of the fruit. Whenever they specifically call it a sin, they usually say it's Adam's sin. That's not a contradiction, of course. There are reasons for it, which I won't go into now. I will someday. Well, why do I bring this up? Well, Genesis, the Genesis account, is often, nowadays, accused of sexism. Because it claims that a woman caused the fall of humanity. And, of course, if the Bible claims a woman did something wrong... There are two options. Either a woman did something wrong or the Bible is evil or, or sexist. 
And sinful man with a sinful heart will take any opportunity he can to discredit God's word. And so he abandons the first option and goes straight for the second. And so even though the rest of the Bible refers to this as Adam's sin, through one man, death entered the world. Adam's sin, Adam transgressed the covenant. The rest of the Bible seems pretty confident saying, or uh, so blaming Adam. But Genesis is still accused of sexism because it portrayed a woman doing something wrong. And I think this reveals the sinful heart of the culture we live in today, how they will really take any chance they get, no matter how silly, to go against the word of God and to blaspheme God and to say horrible things about the Bible. There, there's nothing sexist about Genesis at all. There are two people, both of them mess up. One before the other. And out of those two, it's the man who's constantly blamed for it. And yet somehow that's still sexist against women. And that's not from the sense, by the way, of if anyone wants to try and defend that ridiculous worldview of, oh, well, it's sexist because... Um, Eve wasn't, you know, given the, the guilt it was given to Adam, even though she did it first. Therefore, she wasn't treated properly or some nonsense like that. No, it's because it portrays Eve doing something wrong. Therefore, it must be sexist. That's that's absolutely ludicrous. But, of course, pretty much all... No, I won't say pretty much all arguments against God are ludicrous. Because they, they don't come from the brain. They come from the heart. They come from the heart of stone. A heart that is purely against God. A heart that refuses to accept God as anything other than either a myth or evil or usually both because the heart itself is evil so evil it doesn't want to recognize its own evilness and so see something like god who is perfect and is so utterly against god because god is so perfect and we are so evil that the heart decides i'm not bad i don't like that thing that thing must be bad decides that about god decides that about his word and so even though there's no grounds for claiming sexism in Genesis, it is a criticism which would make the Bible look bad and therefore the sinful heart goes for it, sinful man goes for it and decides, yes, this is what I want to go with now. This is what I want to claim now. And I think it's a testament to the horrible sinfulness we're living in today where people will take literally any chance to attack God in any way they can. We see it like this with the attack on the Bible, calling it things that it's not, because obviously at the heart of sexism is hatred. It's bigotry, and that is evil. And so to claim that the Bible is sexist is to claim that the Bible um, promotes something evil. To claim that God is evil. But that's not the only way God is under attack these days. Of course, we see that all, all the time. He's under attack in his creation. We're destroying his creation. He's under attack in the institution of marriage, which he set up, being changed and warped and perverted. And destroyed and taken away from him. People say, it's, oh no, it's, just a, it's a man-made thing. It's a man-made thing, and so man can decide whatever it is. God created it, God decided what it was, man's trying to change it, not only for something different, but trying to claim that someone created it who didn't. God is attack 
is under attack in so many ways. His truth, his word, himself, under attack in so many ways. And I just wanted to bring that up while I had the opportunity while we were mentioning Adam. Now, the third thing I want to bring up in this verse is, again, there they dealt faithlessly with me. Um, again, I think this is referring both to Adam and to the people of Israel, just as Adam sinned the people of Israel are sinning. Adam, of course, being our federal head, the reason the fall had an effect on us is because he was our federal head in the same way Christ is the federal head of the church. Adam's bad deed um, reflects on us and so affects us. And in the same way, Christ's good deed and good life also has an effect on what happens to us. And of course, if Christ is the second Adam, uh, the better Adam, if you will. We go on now to verse 8. Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. It's interesting how Gilead is referred this way, or Gilead. Gilead is actually a place of refuge. It was a place of refuge. It was a town or a country, uh, excuse me, uh, just beyond Jordan. And it was a city of refuge. But here it's called a city of evildoers tracked with blood we go on to verse 9 and I think it tells us why as robbers lie in wait for a man so priests band together they murder on their way to Shechem they commit villainy Shechem again another place of refuge if we go back a little bit we go back to chapter 4 of Hosea verse 2 there is swearing lying Murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Verse 4 says, Yet let no one contend and let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. Gilead, Shechem, places of refuge. Meant to be good places. Meant to be places, not good in the sense that there's no one there who's a sinner. Of course, that's not what it's saying. But good in the general sense. Good in the sense of it's as good as a sinful place can be. It's, it, you know, you say, oh, he's a good fellow. He's a good lad. You don't mean that they're holy, virtuous, righteous. You just mean oh, they're as good as I suppose you could be. As any, as any sinner could be. Decent. So on. They were decent places. They were places of refuge. Places where people would go in trouble. But as robbers lie and wait for a man, so priests band together. They are compared to robbers. Priests coming together in an organised way to take from people, to hurt people, to get what they want from people. Now that should be reminding you of a few things. Mega churches, not all of them of course, but most. Pretty much all, perhaps apart from John MacArthur's. I'm sure there's maybe one or two more, but generally speaking, that tends to be the rule. The Catholic Church, with their indulgences, though I think that's gone by now. That was gone. That's been gone for quite a while. To be fair, a few hundred years, I think. But it was a thing. Other church, I've heard. I've heard stories from non-believers who say. That they used to have faith, but they let, which of course means they didn't truly have faith. But they used to have faith, at least in their eyes, and they left. 
and they'd actually they had tried a church where they had some concerns about what was being taught and so they went to bring it to the pastor the pastor wouldn't listen to them because they weren't tithing they were told they weren't um, allowed to contend for these things. They weren't allowed to talk about these things. So they weren't allowed to cause any big fuss. They, they wouldn't be treated properly or listened to because they weren't giving in money to the church. And so their opinion didn't seem to matter to anybody because they weren't profiting the church. If they'd been giving money to the church, maybe. No, and that was just a small local church. Now, of course, tithing is a wonderful thing. It's something we should do. It's something that scripture commands us to do. Give as you can. Give as your heart commands you. Not tithing in the Old Testament sense of 10%, but tithing in the sense of what God commands you to give, you give. And there's a church somewhere out there, probably more than one, certainly more than one, that says, pay up or you don't matter. spiritual leadership like that there's no wonder there's so many atheists today but we go back here we see, we just we see this so often unfortunately as robbers lying wait for the man so the priests band together they murder on the way to shechem they commit villainy again like i say um shechem and gilead places of refuge people on their way to places of refuge being murdered being robbed this could be quite literally priests actually going doing this. Or it could be um, symbolic speak, which I believe it is. Basically saying people are coming seeking spiritual refuge. Spiritual guidance. They're coming to these religious leaders because they want to know about God. They have concerns about things and they want to know what God thinks. They want to know what God says. They want to know what his word is and his will is. And they hurt them. The priests hurt them. They take their money. They might say, pay up or else you're, you don't matter. They might give them lies, as a lot of mega church people do today. You know, the whole thing of give me money and you'll be wealthy. Maybe that was the line. Give me money and, you know, God will answer all your questions and everything will just sort of go great for you. Maybe that was the line they were going with. But they were committing villainy. These people of God who were meant to be representing the Lord for the people, meant to be bringing the truth of the Lord to the people, were not doing so. They murder on the way to Shechem. I don't know how many of them would have actually murdered people. But they were leading people astray. They were leading people to damnation. They were leading people away from God, away from the saving truth. One false teacher can do more damage than 100 murderers. And that's what they were. You had just false teachers. There was pretty much no one except for the occasional prophet and maybe the occasional good priest. I say good, but you know what I mean. The occasional decent priest and the occasional prophet sent by God. And then you had a whole host of people in the priesthood, pretty much the entire priesthood, with maybe some exceptions, who fit into this category. They band together like robbers waiting. They band together 
and murder people on their way to a place of refuge. Perhaps it's referring to those people who were seeking God, who were thinking of coming to Christ. Well, not Christ in this, well, the Messiah, I suppose. They're thinking of coming to God anyway, thinking of coming to the Lord, bringing their problems before him. But they're stopped by a roadblock, and that roadblock is these priests giving them nonsense, telling them things that aren't true, telling them lies. Murdering them spiritually, robbing from them their their hope, robbing from them their maybe their possessions. Give me that and God will see you or something. Hurting people. These people who are meant to be virtuous and doing the will of God. Committing villainy. We'll go around to verse 10. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. Israel is defiled. We spoke a little while ago, a few of these messages ago, maybe one or two, about the sickness in Jerusalem and the cush on Judah, the damage done to Judah. The sickness... Starting from inside Jerusalem and growing out the way, spreading. And then going to the rest of Israel, going to Judah and Benjamin and attacking them from the outside. This whole thing, this sickness, this illness, this sin, started in Israel. Started in Jerusalem specifically. And then it began to spread. Because that's what sin does. Because sin is already there. What's spreading isn't necessarily the sin. What's spreading is the amount of sin committed. What's spreading is the strength of the sin. What's spreading the effects of the sin, the frequency of the sin. People were sinning in Jerusalem since day one. It was never perfect. But now the rampantness of sin um, was spreading. Now this more rampant sin, this sin that was... Consuming the people and leading them away from God was spreading. And it started in Jerusalem and it started to spread outwards, consume all of Jerusalem and was now attacking Judah as well. And so now pretty much all of Israel has become defiled. All of Israel is being damaged by this. Judah to a lesser extent, but still damaged and this is the effect of sin this is the effect of false teaching false teaching spreads false teaching spreads of course it does there are a lot of heresies there could be more there are a lot of heresies under umbrella terms you know it's like with uh, prosperity preaching that began and then it just sort of spread progressive teaching postmodern progressive teaching began and then it started to spread and now it's spread pretty much everywhere don't know where it started specifically in the hearts of sinful men is where it started but it spread pretty much and now it's everywhere everywhere you go if you have a town with five churches in them Three of them 
probably spread some form of progressive message. One of them's probably closed. And Lord knows what the other one's doing. There's a chance it might be a biblical church. Chance, depending on where you are. On my way to church, on my way to go to church, I pass, I think about, not sure how many I pass, maybe about three. So, you know, not, 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 not too many, I suppose. I think they're all Catholic. They're not teaching good doctrine. I pass three so-called churches on my way to get to one that actually knows what it's talking about, that actually preaches truth. And I'm probably not the only one. I'm sure there are, you know, there, there are some towns that have churches like opposite each other on the same street. I'm sure there's somewhere in the world where you have on one street a biblical church and then just on the like opposite side of the street, just a few feet away from it, you know, some progressive nonsense or something like that. I'm sure that's happened somewhere. Because false teaching is spreading. It's always been spreading. And with it, sin, because, well, it's a sin itself. But because it's teaching false, it's teaching things that aren't true, teaching things that are against God, and we call those sins. And so it's promoting sin, and so sin is spreading with it. Different kinds of sins. Maybe sins of omission, maybe sins of commission. Maybe both. All different types of sins being spread by all different types of people who call themselves Christians. Say they go to things that they call church. Worship something that they call God. But those are false attributions. They're not Christians. They don't go to church and they don't worship God. They're unsaved people going to a particular building every week worshipping something that isn't there. There is one God in existence. There are billions of gods. Only one of them is actually there to hear you pray. And of those billions of gods, a good number of them are made up of false views of the one true God. The progressive view of the Christian God is a God that doesn't exist. The prosperity view of the Christian God is a God that doesn't exist. The Catholic view of the Christian God is a God who doesn't exist. It's not the majority. The majority of false gods are not false views of the Christian God. But a fair number. A fair number are. Because a false view of God is about as helpful as a false god. If you don't know who you're praying to, you might as well be praying to nobody, because chances are you are. Doesn't mean no one's going to hear you. There is someone who's going to hear you, and someone who, come judgment day, is going to remember you and what you've done. And what you haven't done. But your intended target, the person, the God you think you're praying to, is not there. He never was, he never will be. Or they or she. 
Maybe it's man god, woman god, multiple gods, I don't know. They're not there. Unless it's the one true god, a correct view of the one true god. Otherwise, you're praying in a way that he can still hear. But that come judgment day, you'll wish he didn't. So, I'm going to ask, I have to ask, what I've been describing, does that describe you? Are you someone who maybe has a false view of God? It might be hard to know. You obviously don't have that view on purpose. But are you sure you have the right view of God? Are you sure of it? Do you ever read through the Bible and think, the guy that this is describing doesn't seem like the guy that I worship. Do you ever read through passages where God kills people, for example? You think, I, I, don't, I don't like that. I'm not comfortable with that. If you knew the one true God, you'd be perfectly comfortable with it. You'd be fine with it. It might frighten you, but it wouldn't make you think, oh, I don't know how I like that. And by comfortable, I mean like theologically comfortable. I mean... Does it challenge your view? If you read the Bible and what you read challenges your view, either you've misunderstood the verse or you've misunderstood a few other verses. Either you're wrong about the verse you're reading or you're wrong about what you already believe. And that's, of course, being charitable when I said you're wrong about a few other verses. That's being charitable and assuming what you believe is based on other verses. Does it make you uncomfortable to read the Bible? And when you read through it, do you think this doesn't sound like the God I know? Because if it's, if that's the case, it might just be that the God you know isn't actually there. I hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you would like some other ways of consuming G Witch Ministries, then go to the links in my About section on my YouTube channel, and you will find my website, my TikTok, my Instagram, and my Spotify, where you can find either snippets of these sermons or the full sermons. If you would like to finance these sermons or help me monetarily, then you can also find my Patreon. You don't have to do this, but it would be greatly appreciated. Thanks for watching. God bless. And son of his grandma.